0: Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, American. Happy Saturday. Oh, do we have a show for you? It's short, sweet, but it is compelling. Today, you are going to hear for the first time from an FBI whistleblower named George Hill. He was a senior intelligence analyst in the FBI. First, he served his country as a Marine, then in the Navy then at the NSA, and ultimately at the FBI as a senior supervisory intelligence analyst for the FBI in Boston. And while there, he witnessed an extraordinary set of episodes after the January 6th Capitol riot. In that time frame, he saw the Boston office get tasked from the Washington field office, the one we talk about often on the show with all of its problems, and it clearly and unequivocally gave instructions to begin investigating people for which there was no evidence of a crime. For instance, 140 people who just simply got on a bus and went to Washington. No evidence they went in the Capitol, no evidence they beat a cop, no evidence that they stole money, no evidence they brought a gun. But the Washington field office was pressing, 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 pressing to get 140 separate cases opened up on them. Some believed to pad the numbers, others believed to just create retribution Whatever the case, George Hill tells us what went on. and the extraordinary effort by honest FBI agents and FBI analysts to resist this pressure up the chain of command, the Boston FBI held the line, and good for them. They repelled it. But in the process of that, George Hill learned of two additional things. One is that the FBI had gotten the names and identified these 140-plus people, by getting bank records without a subpoena, he says, without a national security lever, it was simply volunteered by the Bank of America. Now, we've reached out to the Bank of America, reached out to the FBI, I haven't got anything back for them, but he says it was voluntary. And that raises some real questions about the Fourth Amendment and whether banks are complying with their privacy policies. George Hill is going to walk us through that. And then there was a second thing. In the fight over whether they should or not investigate people for which there was no evidence of a crime, the Boston FBI went out of its way and said, listen, let us look through the footage. We'll let you know if these guys committed a crime, and then we'll open up an investigation. And the FBI in Washington said, no, 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 can't do that. Wait a second. We're on your team. We're FBI agents like you. Let us, if you want us to open up and be the case agents, you've got to give us the evidence. And the FBI in Washington said, you can't look at it because it might reveal some undercover agents and confidential human sources that were on scene. Anyone think a problem about that? That's a question we've not been able to get the FBI to answer. So that is what you're going to hear. Taking here from George Hill directly, and then we'll hear from his lawyer, Jason Foster, Amanda Head, my great co-host on the TV show. While well, they spent the time for that, we're going to have a great, great conversation. Two blocks with George Hill, one block with Jason Foster. Buckle your seatbelt. It's going to be a great show today. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. <music> There was a brand new FBI whistleblower who went to the House Judiciary Committee this week and delivered some extraordinary new information about just what went on in the January 6th investigation, uh, the pressure by Washington on field offices to gin up cases where there was no crime. Very important stuff. Uh, well, that whistleblower is here with us now joining us. He is, uh, joined us, uh, he serves this country as a Marine, as a Naval officer as an NSA, excellent excellent NSA employee, and then went to the FBI to be a Supervisory Intelligence Analyst where he witnessed his conduct in Boston, Massachusetts after the January 6th event. Joining us right now for the first time is Supervisory Intelligence, retired Supervisory Intelligence Analyst, George Hill. George, great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: We also have your great lawyer with you from the Empower Whistleblower Center, Jason Foster. He's a freaking guest on our show. Jason, good to have you on as well.
1: Thanks for having me. George? So before, oh, yeah. before we get started, John, I want to get accused of stolen valor. I was enlisted, um, senior enlist, uh, senior, senior chief enlisted. So I don't mm-hmm. want to get anybody. That's a like, good I idea. Kind of
0: I apologize, I'm off that. Uh, we're grateful no. for your service. I will tell you that. We really are. Um, you've had this distinguished career. You take the rules of the intelligence community seriously throughout your career. January 6th comes along and you witness something pretty extraordinary. In the boss's office, something that troubled you enough that you went to Congress this week. Tell us what went on. What was what concerned you?
1: So I had raised the issue um, through the annual uh, employee survey, um, which the director ensured us that he does read them all, and I didn't get any reply. And um, and then of course January 6th happened, and my role is uh, was dual-hatted between. The high intensity drug trafficking area, as well as supporting the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Fusion Center and the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, also referred to as the BRIC. So I had two uh, FBI analysts, one in each location, and they were very actively engaged in um, the one at the Fusion Center was um, heavily focused, not heavily focused, but was dual-hatted in that he supported, uh, this person supported the. International Terrorism Front, the domestic terrorism front, as well as um the uh, gangs and drugs associated with the high intensity drug trafficking area, the Haida. And then the other analyst in um at the BRIC, uh, mostly focused on uh domestic uh, violent extremists and of course the occasional uh international terrorist uh that the, the may manifest itself. So they were coordinating roles um, as far as, you know, it also intelligence sharing roles. So we worked worked very closely with our uh, state and local law enforcement partners in those offices. Um, so when January 6th occurred, um, the very next day, um, the ADIC, the assistant deputy in charge, assistant director in charge of the Washington field office, Uh, And his number two, uh, who was at the Domestic Terrorism Operations Center, um, who's now uh, in charge of the training command down at Quantico, Uh, the ADIC has since left under a cloud of controversy. I believe he was allowed to retire. Nonetheless, um, they organized a nationwide conference call to all 56 fusion centers. And, you know... Of course, you know, based on the videos that were out at the time on, you know, when people went home on January 6th and then in the morning news cycle on the 7th, um, the the level of of concern across the country was extremely high. And the ADIC, that's what I'll refer to him going forward, um, would conduct these conference calls to all 56 fusion centers. And anybody could, could dial into this. So we're talking state and local partners, not just FBI uh, political appointees. so at any given time, there could be literally thousands of people uh, on these conference calls. And he would kick these conference calls off and, and I would describe his, his posture uh, at times as almost hysterical, which, coming from a military background, um, is not the kind of uh, not the kind of tone that one would want to set in order to engender trust and confidence. Um, and then he would go into, uh, I guess, kind of a scene set or kind of like a warm up act, you know, for a, a lead band coming on the stage. And he would explain, you know, what happened, how many people were injured, how many arrests were made, kind of going through some early stats. And then who the, the FBI was working with um, in terms of the social media companies and how they were trying to um Uh, inject as as much information uh, as possible. And then he would turn it over uh, to the other gentleman uh, who was a GS-15 at the time, section chief at uh, DTOS, uh, Domestic Terrorism Operations Center. Um, He's now a senior executive. Um, And he would get into more of the operational aspects of the details of leads being set, which office was going to do what, um, and then really uh, well outside the bounds of FBI protocol. They used a Microsoft program called OneNote where anybody with access to the FBI uh, unclassified FOUO network called UNET um, could just add names and any kind of pertinent information they may have. So we were getting hysterical uh, phone calls and tips to our office, one of which comes to mind uh, where uh, a woman, you know, I guess meaning well, um, but her neighbor's truck that had a 2 way bumper sticker on it and a Trump bumper sticker on it uh, left his residence uh, before January 6th and returned back on January 7th or 8th. I don't remember the exact dates, but it was two years ago. Uh, and wanted us to open up a case, uh, a case on it. And uh, to, you know, to the Boston office credit, we said, no, we don't all open up cases. There's no predication for someone moving a pickup truck. But that was kind of the atmosphere um, those early uh, first two weeks um, after January 6th. And I'm going to stop there for any you know, questions and stuff. Yeah.
2: George. Thank you so much for being here and speaking out about that. Um, you brought up the the two A sticker on the car, and um, I'm just—I think our audience would like to know as far as you know the Bank of America records, the people who they were tracking these what 140 people's records. Um, I know that there were some triggers, some flags as far as who got scooped up in this. Do you know what those are?
1: So, I, I it, it, as I told the uh, committee in testimony the. I did not actually look at the list itself. I looked at the EC, the electronic communication that was used to upload the list into the FBI's official system, a system of official record called Sentinel, um, because we have been set a lead from WFO for seven individuals. Now, that could be plus or minus one, but it's in that ballpark, somewhere between f- uh, five to to eight, I'm sorry, six to eight individuals. So... We'll just settle on the, on the median of seven. Um, and the lead was telling us to, to open up at least a preliminary investigation, a PI, into those seven individuals based on the data mining that Bank of America did to generate that list. So they, Bank of America um, set a, a date range of 5 to 7 January. And then anyone who used a BOA, a Bank of America product, whether that be a debit card, or a credit card, uh, inside or immediately surrounding the district or who bought a plane ticket to go to the district prior to January 6th and left after January 6th. That was the original poll. And then they went and data mined it further. And anyone on that list who had purchased a firearm would move to the top of the list, uh, for more closer scrutiny. Um, and to their credit, um, you know, I I said it in front of committee. I'll say it here. I'll call balls and strikes. Give credit where credit is due um, to their credit, to the supervisor's credit, to his chain of command all the way up to the SAC. Um, responded that there's no there's no evidence of a crime being committed here. We cannot open up preliminary investigations on someone for using a financial uh, instrument uh, in the district, and so they push back and. Boston did not take any action on those names. What I cannot comment on, because I don't know, is if Washington Field Office took any actions on those names.
0: Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, more with George Hill. We're going to pick up right where we left off before the commercial break. Uh, we're still with retired FBI Supervisor talented Intelligence George Hill, and he was telling us what was going on January 6th. We talked, George, about these seven names that come in that they have leads on. There's no evidence of a crime. You're pushing back. Then a larger block of names comes, we were told from uh, what you told Congress. Tell us about the 140 names and what went on with that part of the investigation.
1: So um, two organizers from Natick, Massachusetts, um, and I I believe Jason may have some more, more deep, granular information on that, organized a couple of buses to get down to, uh, the, to the Trump rally that was being conducted on January 6th. And they come up with this whimsical name, I think, like Happy Fun Tour or something like that. And, you know, there was really, I think the name kind of says it all, that there was no nefarious intent uh, of an insurrection. Um, they just wanted to organize some people who wanted to go down and exercise their First Amendment rights to participate in a political rally. And two of the individuals, the two organizers, were actually um, identified via, uh, uh, I believe, still footage, not video footage. And one of them eventually pleaded, uh, the woman whose name escapes me right now, and the, the gentleman, I believe, is still in the throes of the legal process. But WFO said, hey, we want you to open up. PIs preliminary investigations on these remaining or these 140 people that took the buses and down to D.C. and again um, the, the supervisory agent in charge, um, the supervisory special agent in charge, not in charge, but the SSA said that no, we're not we're not opening up cases for people that were going down to a political rally. And WFO said, well, you know, we'll, we'll call your boss. To which he replied, well. By all means, go ahead. So then another GS-15 called our, his GS-15 and said, hey, you need to open up cases on these people, these PIs, uh, to which that individual said, no, we're not, we're not doing it. Um, getting on a bus to participate in a political rally um, is not predication for uh, a crime or you know a preliminary investigation. Um, he pretty much got the same response. Well, well, we'll have my boss call your boss. And he said, well, go right ahead. And again, the special agent in charge of the Boston office, uh, I, I, my experience with him the years I've known him as a man of integrity and, and a strong supporter of not just the rule of law, but the Bill of Rights, um, said, no, we're not, we're not opening up cases on, uh, on 140 people just for taking a bus ride. And it, as far as Boston knows, it ended there. What WFO did with it, I have no idea.
2: Incredible. It's chilling to hear this. It is. It is. Jason, I want to pivot to you because I know that, you know, we've had you on the show before representing uh, people like this. And, and we know why it's important to protect folks like George, because they have this vital information that frankly should be important to all Americans, regardless of which side of the aisle they're on. But but talk to us about the importance of cases like this, statements like this and information getting out there.
3: Sure. So, um, uh, you know, Steve Friend is another uh, uh, whistleblower that I'm uh, representing. And, you know, he's in a much worse situation than George in terms of being subject to uh, immediate retaliation. They mm-hmm. yanked his security clearance and he's sitting home without a paycheck. George can come forward and, and speak uh, for much more freely because, you know, because, frankly, he's retired. And so there's fewer opportunities for them to uh, retaliate against him. But the key is, you know, the committee who's looking into – You know, the Judiciary Committee, they need to be able to have access to people on the ground who were in the organization, who saw and heard things that they can factually testify to uh, so that the committee can get to the bottom of this. You know, we don't know exactly what happened with all these uh, bank records exactly. Uh, You know, George has one sliver of knowledge into it. He saw the E.C. You know, he has some secondhand knowledge about, you know, pushback on refusing to open cases. But the bottom line is that, you know, the people's representatives in the House Judiciary Committee um, you know, it's their job to examine this and figure out whether, uh, you know, whether the, there was proper legal predication for, for Bank of America to turn over those records, for the, what the FBI did in trying to uh, get those records. And there's frankly just questions of waste and fraud, you know, waste uh, and abuse of taxpayer resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, after 9-11, everybody was upset that we didn't connect the dots. We didn't find the needle in the haystack. Uh, you know, and what's happened, we turned the, the FBI into a domestic, uh, you know, surveillance organization. And now we collect, you know, tens of thousands of haystacks. It's even harder to find the needles. And this is a perfect example of that, where you have tons of people, you just, they want to push numbers and they want to get tons of cases open so that they can say they're addressing domestic violent extremism and they can say that there's a big problem with it. Um, but, you know, it's just, this is another example of the evidence that we're seeing that there, a lot of that is just uh, appears to be hype, and, and it was pred, you know predicated on just the thinnest. The fact that someone is in D.C. and goes to a rally, as George said, is just not reason to open up a criminal investigation.
2: Yeah. You
0: got that right. George, we only got about two minutes left. I want to ask this. A lot of times when a P.I. comes in and there's not a clear predicate, the agents and the analysts will say, can we go through footage? Can we see if they did anything wrong? Did you guys or did your team or did the FBI agents in Boston ask for access to the footage? and they get any response back for that?
1: We did, and and this is uh, nationwide across all the field offices. When you ask for footage, what they'll come back with is, tell us the exact place and time where you think the subject of your investigation was, to which the standard reply is, well, we don't know because we can't see the footage. And it was, the the, the comeback was, is that, while there may be identities within that footage that we need to protect. Um, so one can in, make inferences, uh, regarding that, um, who those identities were, they were looking to protect, but that probably wasn't their grandparents or their aunts and uncles.
0: Yeah. Uh, let me just follow up real quickly. Did you ever hear from anyone how Bank America turned over these records? Was there a subpoena, a national security letter? We got only about 45 seconds, but I think that uh, people no. listening are going to want to say, what, well, how did they get these records?
1: Nobody asked for it. Um, it was totally voluntary. They sent it in of their own accord, um, which is perfectly legal if you see a crime being committed. Right. You know, there is kind of a, at the beginnings of a chain of evidence custody. If you see a crime being committed, to the best of my knowledge, use of a BOA product is not a crime. Wow. I mean, the lawful use, the owner using it is right. not a crime.
0: Buying a train ticket is not illegal in this country, or a bus ticket, or a plane ticket. Right, right. Um, what an amazing story, gentlemen. Uh, lots of new questions. I'm sure the House Judiciary Committee is going to follow up, but this is an extraordinary story on civil liberties. We're so grateful, George, for your courage and coming forward for your incredible service to your country all these decades. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. Jason, as always, we benefit from your great work at the Empower Oversight Whistleblower Center so often. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to spend a little bit more time with Jason Foster. I spent a little time following up after the George Hill thing. We're going to talk to him about the FBI in general, all the oversight work he did as a senator before he became a whistleblower representative. And uh, we're going to have a lot of conversation. Don't go anywhere. Jason Foster will be here right after the commercial break.
4: All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. Before we took that little break, we had two great segments with the FBI whistleblower, George Hill. You really got a sense of the man who served this country as a Marine, and the Navy, and the NSA, and ultimately in the FBI. And the type of line agent that is willing to stand up to make sure that they follow the law, even when their political bosses want something different. Joining us now is the lawyer, former Senate investigator, and current head of the Empower Oversight Whistleblower Center, who has been helping folks like George Hill and Steve Friend, the other FBI whistleblower we've had on this show, His name is Jason Foster. You know him well. He's been on the show many times, and we welcome him back. Jason, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, John. You have some pretty extraordinary whistleblowers, and you've worked with them for many years, two, three decades in the Congress. Now, in your capacity as the head of the Empower Oversight Whistleblower Center, George Hill, when you listen to him and you you see what drives that man, he simply just wanted to do his job the right way And he saw these political actors in Washington trying to force the Boston FBI to do something it shouldn't. My guess is that there's a lot more agents like him than the Pete Strux and others that we've seen in the last few years as sort of the face of wrongdoing in this FBI. What's your take on these two incredible whistleblowers that you're representing?
5: uh well there you, you are absolutely right there are many more um uh, you know and we saw that referenced in some of the testimony before the uh uh weaponization subcommittee yesterday um right. there are, there are very there are very few who are willing to stand up and take what uh the retaliation that comes when they do speak out publicly or in any kind of official forum um and so and in fact you know you, there's this phenomenon that happens you know every time they do um the the once their name is out there and they stick their head up, they get tons of contacts from other uh like minded people. You know, most of the most of the feedback that they get is positive and it's from other people who are still in and saying, Thank you for saying this because, you know, I can't afford to take the chance. And of course George is in a position that he's retired and so Um, you know, unless they, unless they go scorched earth and, you know, start uh, going after him, you know, going after uh, his retirement income or something, which is unlikely. There's not a lot they can do to him. You know, he's a, he's a lot freer to speak than someone who's still relying on the FBI for a paycheck like Steve friend. And of course they've cut him off for, for many months now from his paycheck with an unjust uh, security clearance or uh, suspension.
4: That's remarkable. The mindset that george hill describes when the washington field office is trying to press the boston field office to open up investigations on people for which there isn't a predicate there seems to be more of this idea that the fbi's job was to save democracy some things that aren't in the really chart of the fbi the fbi is supposed to solve crimes and stop terrorist attacks it seems as though there's a group or a generation of these washington type supervisors washington ticket punchers that seem to have some sort of political ideological mission for their job rather than the one that the FBI does. How did that happen? How did this ideological mission creep get into an agency that, you know, for two and three, four or five decades just solves crimes?
5: Yeah, well, you you have a lot. Um, uh, there's a lot of potential for abuse whenever you get away from the civil liberties protections that are inherently built into the criminal system and the process of conducting criminal investigations you know as lots of these uh, folks have said um and was said in the you know in the testimony some of the testimony in the hearing yesterday um uh, before the house subcommittee you know when you know that you're going to have to use the information that you're gathering in a court of law and you're going to have to you know raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and you have you know the the justice system to hold you accountable uh then you play by the rules but if you're just gathering information and you're just gathering intelligence um You can get into all kinds of mischief, like we've seen with the Twitter files and everything else, where you have a part of it's just bureaucratic bloat. I mean, you have tons of people at the FBI, you have a gigantic budget, and they're just, you know, doing what they do to justify their existence. And they figure out, you know, so they have a whole group of people just reporting people to Twitter for violations of Twitter's terms of service, which does nothing to serve the function and
4: mission of the FBI.
5: But, you know, they've got, I guess, bodies to spare with lots of extra time.
4: Yeah, it seems like they have idle time and they've invented political missions for themselves instead of the criminal and intelligence missions that are so important.
5: Meanwhile, they're pulling Steve Friend off of child exploitation cases, right, in order to have him focus on a January 6th uh, narrative, which is, you know, politically driven from Washington.
4: Yeah, such a great point. There's a consequence every time they're distracted from the real mission. People are put at risk so that some political uh, goal can be achieved. Um, I've heard you talk about this, and I think it's such an important big picture to look at. There is this notion in Washington now among people who want to get into the FBI, get into law enforcement, that their job is driven by some ideological concepts or whatever they learned in law school. There's a lot more lawyers, there's a lot fewer people that go through the FBI Academy that get into some of these high ranking jobs. The agents who go through the academy seem to be so schooled in the division and protection of civil liberties. But those who come in from the outside, all those who come in from the Justice Department without going through the academy or through the training that made the FBI what it was for so long, they seem to easily steep into politics. And those who try to stop them because they were trained the right way become the bad guys. They become the enemy within the FBI. Tell us what's going on with Steve Friend right now. I understand there's some new evidence of retaliation going on.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, what's what's publicly known so far is that he, you know, had his security clearance suspended pending a review, and what that does is immediately take him off the payroll, kick him out of the office, uh, and hmm. and starts to put the financial squeeze on him and his family. Um, right. So, uh, so in addition to that, they have now opened an FBI inspections division investigation targeting him. And th- th- we see this all the time. This is what happens. The whistleblower sticks their head up. They report some kind of misconduct or wrongdoing. And then all the investigative resources are focused on not the thing that they blew the whistle on, but on them and trying to find something to to sideline them or discredit them or to undermine them. It, it, it's amazing. It's really like it's almost like the antibodies, in, you know, attacking a virus or so, you know, attacking right. a, a bacteria you know it's like the the bureaucratic system immediately you know the whistleblower sticks their head up and then they get um, all this procedural uh investigative resources aimed at them and uh so so in the FBI inspections division is that's their sort of internal um you know uh, professional responsibility uh, uh mechanism at the FBI they've opened up an investigation targeting Steve in addition to the security clearance investigation that's going on and in the course of doing that, they gave him a notice of the investigation and tried to. And the notice had a gag order in it. They said, "You can't tell anybody about the fact that we've opened this investigation. Uh, you can't tell your family." You know. Meanwhile, they're they're calling him up to D.C. to to interview him from Florida. At what well, he's not supposed to tell his wife that uh, where he's going or why he's going there. I mean, it's insane and it's illegal. Um, there's a provision That's in right? the Right. There's a provision in the appropriations bill that says no, no appropriated money shall be used for any um, any kind of gag or nondisclosure that would prevent people from blowing the whistle. Uh, Friend is absolutely legally uh, allowed to go and talk to um, people like me to get legal advice. He's allowed to go talk to um, the committee uh, uh, on the House uh, to blow the whistle on on and, and to. Fight the retaliation that he's facing. And the fact that they are illegally trying to gag him and say, we're going to investigate you and we want, we're we going to force you to talk to us. And, oh, by the way, you can't tell anybody
4: is outrageous. It's extraordinary. Will Congress be learning about this? Will there be a notification to Congress that the very law they put in place to prevent this may right now be being violated?
5: Oh, you can be sure that I'm uh, already raising it with folks on the Hill and folks in the inspector general uh, office. And, um, you know, they're going to they're going to have to answer for why they're uh, violating the law.
4: Yeah, that's going to be a big moment and uh, one that we all should be watching closely, the retaliation game that goes on. Jason, you had such extraordinary viewpoint of the FBI in your oversight role at the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Chuck Rousey for so long. You played a big role in unraveling the source of the funding and the Clinton role in the Russia collusion case. I look at four or five of these most recent wayward FBI investigations or intelligence products that have come out. One this week that the FBI recalled right away after it got media attention. One targeting Catholics who might go to Latin mass because there was a belief that they might be extremists. Even a suggestion that FBI agents start embedding themselves secretly into Catholic organizations. Now, the FBI pulled that back, but when you look at the document, core information came from the Southern Poverty Law Center, a very liberal group out of Georgia. The information for the Russia case started with the Hillary Clinton campaign. The information to pursue school board parents as a domestic extremists or terrorists came from a liberal leading school board association. There seems to be this uh, re- repeating cycle of FBI agents getting fed information from a partisan or ideological group, and then using that as the basis for opening up investigations. How did that cycle begin and how do we stop it, right? We don't want the FBI to be the political score setter. We want them to be the crime solver. There seems to be this continuing cycle. And, and no matter how much attention comes to it, the FBI keeps falling prey to it.
5: Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a hard question. I don't know how you fix that. I mean, you know, in the it, it, not only did you have, you know, the, the Trump-Russia thing being driven by the, uh, by the the uh, Clinton campaign, their lawyers and Fusion GPS. I mean, you also had the role of Brookings that keeps popping up That's again right. and again. Uh, and you know, you have this entire, you have this huge infrastructure uh, on the left. And uh, in the Twitter matter, you have all these, you know, these disinformation grants. Some of them are, are taxpayer funded. Some of them are right. are privately funded. Uh, you know, and you create these sort of, you know, this quote disinformation industry that then starts feeding things into the FBI. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think the FBI needs to be they need to be aware they need to be you know, I don't know if there's it's new training or it's you know, or what it is, but they need to have an understanding that there are folks out there that are looking to manipulate them for political purposes. And every time they fall for it, they're damaging the reputation of the FBI in a way that is fundamentally harmful to not only the FBI, but to the country, because we need a functioning FBI that people can trust and are willing to talk to. Um, You know, they need cooperation of the citizenry. They need cooperation of state and local law enforcement. And uh, the further they go down this road of seeming to not care that half the country thinks that they're have their thumb on the scale for one political side over the other, uh, the worse the problem gets. Um, And, you know, I don't know if it's salvageable. I hope it's salvageable, but there has to be some kind of, toned from the top that recognizes that it's a problem. And re- instead yeah. of just attacking the people who point out the problem.
4: Yeah. Well, the good news about the most recent episode is out of Richmond and intelligence product is once national headquarters got involved, they not only recalled the product, but they acknowledged that it wasn't the sort of thing the FBI should be doing. I think they said it didn't meet our exacting standards. And that's why it's been told. And then we started an investigation. That's different than some of the responses that we saw. Certainly. In Russia collusion or or other earlier partisan investigations, maybe that message is starting to sink in, but it seems like it's a long hoe ahead. And I just want to finish the conversation with something good. I know we all know we need an FBI like organization in America, but the last six years have probably done more to erode confidence in the FBI than any moment. Do you think the leaders of the FBI understand that their trust in everyday Americans has been really driven downward by these many, many missteps that they've made?
5: I don't see any evidence that they understand it um, in in any public way. I I, I do believe that, that some people um, uh, uh, around the uh, director Ray and who care about director Ray's reputation you know, do understand it and are concerned about it. Uh, But I don't see any evidence that that has, you know, that there's any in in the public record that they're doing anything to address it. Uh, I mean, the number one thing that they could do, as I said, would be to acknowledge the problem and then double down on a commitment to transparency and cooperation with oversight, because, you know, that's, that's the real cure to this. I mean, these things like the, like the examples that you gave, You know, these initiatives get stopped before they do too much harm when they're exposed and when people know about them. Um, You know, that's what causes transparency is what causes uh, accountability um, and and makes change more than any really much more effectively than any sort of, uh, you know, kind of reform legislation or trying to rewrite rules or whatever. Um, You know, just having it out there in the public and having to answer for it is a, a big incentive to do the right thing.
4: Yeah, now that, those are wise words, and uh, we learned a little bit after that about nine eleven. I think some of the transparency we got about the nine pre nine eleven failures made the FBI a better organization for a while, uh, and then you played yeah. a big role in that, and in exposing some of the things like what Janine Turner found in Minnesota and others. And there was a period where the FBI seemed to be inflective in realizing it needed to expose, learn, and adapt. But that culture seems to have waned quite a bit in the last few years. Jason, real quickly, how do people get involved with the great work you're doing at Empower Oversight? It's such an important organization. If they're a whistleblower that wants to reach out or a donor that wants to support it, what's the best way for them to get involved? EmpowerOversight.org
5: is our website. There's a donate button there, um, and there's also a button there to uh, contact us uh, securely via ProtonMail um, if if, uh, you would like to seek help, or make a disclosure.
4: That's an important website, folks. I check it daily. It's one of the most important new websites and new organizations in Washington, though Jason has been a veteran of the battles here. He's created a really great new entity. Jason, a great honor to have you on, a great honor to have George Hill tell his story on our shows. I want to thank you a lot. Wish you a good weekend, and I'm sure you've got a lot of work ahead of you on the Steve Friend case come Monday morning. Yes, yes. Uh, looking forward to it. Thanks. All right, thanks, my friend. Folks, we'll be right back in a second to wrap things up.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up the Saturday edition of John Solomon Reports. Check in tomorrow. We've got some big-name guests coming on, including... The former Defense Secretary, Chris Miller. Congressman Chris Stewart, one of the key members of the House Intelligence Committee. He's going to talk about China. So is Chris Miller. The former Attorney General, Matt Whitaker. He's got a lot to say. Congressman Austin Scott, he has some important things. He's also on the Intelligence Committee. And then Scotty Moore, a candidate for Congress who lost narrowly in Florida, but he wasn't allowed to attend his debate. The TV station that held the debate between him and his Democratic challenger wouldn't allow Scotty Moore to attend because of his vaccine status, his COVID vaccine status. Well, months later, the state of Florida has fined that TV station for violating Florida law. Scotty Moore is going to tell us that story. That's going to be tomorrow's show. Be sure to come back. We'll have a great day for the Sunday brunch edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, God bless you. Good night. Have a great weekend. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold...